I'm just going to hand it off to Father D'Souza for our last talk before we have a quick break and then the moderated roundtable. But we're going to be try to be make sure that we're done by 4:30. That way, anyone trying to get to mass, um, we're on time. So, thanks, Father. Well, I admire your stamina. Eight talks in less than 24 hours. Uh, it's pretty impressive uh, capacity. And uh, talks in the afternoon when you should be resting, also very impressive. So uh, I might finish a bit early and we can maybe have a little bit of a discussion and then maybe even start the round table early if those who are understandably could be a little bit tired after starting uh, early 7.30 this morning for those who are at Mass. The uh, talk I want to give uh, actually fits very well with the talk that just concluded on liberalism and where are we today with <coughs> liberal democracy. Uh, are there doubts about it? Are people revisiting it? Um, you know, Michael Novak and uh, Father Newhouse um, were great champions of that the American order was an example of that liberal democracy being a place where people could flourish. Uh, and Father Newhouse certainly took the view that everything that was listed as pathologies in the previous talk was a corruption of the American order, not of the fruit of the American order. And a corruption largely driven by the courts, that was his view. Uh, towards the end of his life, uh, as the evidence mounted that the corruption was very widespread, and even if led by the courts, uh, was very widely accepted, I think he began to think about that. Then he died in 2009. Uh, that's a good question. Michael Novak, you know, Michael Novak was so bullish on the American order, um, verging on what I think is impermissible for a Christian, not going over but verging on it. You know, he called the United States an almost chosen people. He thought that there's something about the United States that was not like the divine election of Israel, but something in that direction which to those who are not Americans is a bit odd, but uh, he did have that view. And if you want to take that view, which Michael Novak had, and certainly defended it very ably, you might be saying, well, then this is like a period where Israel turned against his faith, and Israel gave itself, as you know, in certain periods of its history, uh, over to great abominations. So if you take that line, that might be that the order is not corrupt, but the people have become corrupted. And therefore, the people need some kind of redemption or restoration, uh, but the order itself is not corrupt. So in a certain sense, you know, what uh, Michael Novak and Richard Newhouse, we miss them in this moment. But also I think maybe they were uh, pleased not to see some aspects of this moment. But anyway, it's very, it's a good discussion. It's quite a, quite a fascinating one. Is the order corrupt or is the order bearing its own fruit? 
And although Benedict XVI does not address the American situation, he addresses a broader situation in the speeches that I want to speak about. And I think for those who are interested in social doctrine in the 21st century, some of the questions that previously occupied our attention, organization of the economy, organization of or the proper ordering of political authority, uh, questions of war and peace, many of those things have taken a bit of a secondary status, as important as they are, to fundamental questions that previously were not really engaged, such as the relationship between truth and freedom, the relation between faith and reason, the relation between violence and faith, the relation between peace and pluralism, the relation between unity and diversity. These are questions that are very much at the forefront of social life today. And so I think <coughs> those questions, if you go back and read the principal texts of Catholic social doctrine, some of which I mentioned this morning, you would not find those questions engaged as much as you find questions of the proper organizing principles for politics, economics, and culture. But these questions are very much at the forefront now. What does it mean to be free? What relation does truth have to freedom? What relationship does faith have to truth and reason? These are questions that are dominating in sometimes our political culture. The point about courts leading social change is because they've adopted views of um, truth and freedom uh, that are at odds with the traditional positions on that. And then from that has followed uh, other changes. So that being said, I think it's actually a very good entry point to the contemporary questions in Catholic social teaching, 21st century, uh, to look at some talks that Benedict gave. Uh, Benedict had a kind of unusual pontificate in that he arrived as Pope in April of 2005, having spent more than 20 years as the architect or we would say chief lieutenant, lieutenant in the United States, of the previous pontiff. That's very unusual in church history. So he arrived there having been part of all of these rather large initiatives, especially doctrinal ones that John Paul II had undertaken. And he said from the beginning that he didn't think it was really necessary for him to produce documents in the same volume or frequency as John Paul did, because they just done it. And he'd worked on them all, so uh, whatever he thought should be said probably already been said. So he devoted his eight years as pope to other tasks, the principal one of which was that he wrote three books while he was pope, which is also highly unusual. Uh, the first one, Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 1, was actually underway, but he finished it as Pope. The second volume, Holy Weeches of Nazareth, was a major work. 
just to give you a sense, a professor who spent his life as a biblical scholar would aspire at the end of his life to produce that as a kind of capstone of his career. And Bendick did it while on the side, serving as universal pastor of the church. So <clears throat> he devoted a lot of time to that. He devoted a lot of time to his Wednesday audience catechesis, his talks on church history, on uh, the figures of the church, doctors and saints, and so forth. So he really used his capacity as a, reach, as a research scholar and as a preacher and teacher to clarify uh, or to teach, let's say, just to teach the church less reliance on his documents. Of course, he had encyclicals, but um, he had relatively few of them. And in that general approach, we find the September speeches. You won't find, if you look up September speeches, you won't find them. You'll find something I wrote. I call them the September speeches uh, because they were given in September, first of all. Uh, but there's five of them that he gave, all on trips, all that took place in September. I think that because uh, after the end of June, Pope uh, Benedict would go to Castel Gandolfo, the papal residence, summer residence, and he would spend the summer there, and the popes sort of suspend their summer routine, they don't do audiences and so forth, and he would spend that time, I think, writing his books and also thinking more deeply, and so these trips that came up in September, I think, were maybe part of the fruit of that. Just as an aside, I think it's kind of you know, Castel Gandolfo, the papal residence, summer residence, only started being used for that in the 1930s or so, I think. And uh, maybe Pius XI's pontificate. So there are two papal residences, the one at the Apostolic Palace and the one at Castel Gandolfo. And so you think, well, excellent. So we get this very unprecedented, totally unprecedented in the history of the church, where you have two, pope and retired pope, living in sort of, you know, close proximity and uh, comity and amity, uh, sitting excellent, We're prepared for this because we've got two residences, one apostolic palace, Castel Gandolfo. And just to show you that the church never really proceeds in a uh, linear fashion, neither residence is being used, even though we have two of them. So Bendit could have just stayed. He could have just stayed in his old bedroom if he wanted to. It's not being used. So he could have stayed there or he could have moved out to Castel Gandolfo and stayed there. But anyway, that's not relevant to the point. So he gave these speeches in September on four, five trips. First trip was to Germany in September of 2006. Second trip was to Paris, France in 2008. Uh, 2010 in London, 2011 back in Germany, but this time not Regensburg, in Berlin, and then finally in Lebanon in 2012. So he organized his year to include a trip in September most years, and in each of those trips he gave what you might call a magisterial lecture. A lecture on, on a wide-ranging topic like faith and reason, delivered to an audience that was usually described as a meeting with figures of culture, figures of law, government leaders, religious leaders, diplomats, 
university professors. So the idea was is he was addressing himself not to the religious world in general, or much less the Catholic world, but giving a broad argument to those who have concern for society, for leadership. And not the idea that leadership is only politics. These lectures were not given to politicians. Some political figures were present in two places, Westminster and Berlin. It was in a political building. But this sort of broader address to the world of scholarship, of law, of diplomacy, of religion, of theology, culture, all those things that go into shaping our common life together. So what I'd like to do, so you have this handout here, the, there's an article, this was my article column from the Catholic Herald that came out this week, um, and it's arguing there that uh, this speech that uh, Benedict's secretary gave, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, last week was kind of like a September speech on a broad topic. It was actually about Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. Um, but in the context of that, I talk about the September speeches in general. So that's why that is there if you want to look at that. But the outline takes us, there are five speeches. My purpose is not to give you a comprehensive step-by-step. -step. There's quite a number of points. I'm only going to touch on some of them. But they're listed there. The reason I did it this way is that you will find, if you go and read these speeches, first of all, they're quite short. It's not like reading a 30,000-word encyclical. You can find them on the Vatican website. And then in the points that I've given there, you've got a kind of a roadmap through it. So if you want to go and follow up on these five September speeches, you can do so quite easily with this outline. That's why it's a bit more detailed. I'm not attempting to go through all that detail here in the lecture. Also, at the top of it, you'll see under the title, there's an article I did for my magazine back, um, I think in 2013, uh, on the September speeches. So that's basically, if you're interested in this, you can follow up, I think, in a fairly user-friendly way. What I want to just talk about is the five speeches and the general points that Bendik is trying to make. And really, one way to think about it is that these five speeches, all given in September on trips of his, are a unfolding of the alternative to the dictatorship of relativism. When Benedict Ratzinger used that term, the dictatorship of relativism, he was using it to mean that if you lose sight of truth and you give in to relativism, you end, you end up in a dictatorship even though that seems like where you'd precisely not end up. If you are going to be a relativist, the last thing you think you'd end up doing is coercing others. But in fact, if others don't agree to your relativism, you end up having to coerce them. So <clears throat> that dictatorship of relativism, which is based on the idea of truth, freedom, reason, etc., becomes if you want to say the background to these five September speeches. So let's go through them, and then we'll have a chance for questions and uh, discussion. Um, so the first September speech is the most famous of them, which was given at Regensburg in 2006. So Benedict was elected in April 2005. Already on the papal calendar for that year was the World Youth Day in Cologne that summer. So he was back in Germany within a few months of his election for the World Youth Day. 
But 2006 was really his first trip that he had planned back to Germany, and he went back to those places which were especially dear to him, including the University of Regensburg, where he had taught as a young professor. And he addressed himself to the question at Regensburg of basically what is the role of reason in the world of faith? And the argument he made at Regensburg is a very bold argument. He said that the truth of revelation has been expressed to us, <coughs> received by us, in the categories of Greek philosophy. And Bendix says that this is not an accident that could have been otherwise, but actually is part of God's providential plan. So we're meant to understand what we can understand about God in these categories. It's a very bold claim. It's not the claim of the church, by the way. The church doesn't teach this. The church doesn't insist on it. Benedict does. It's his own view. And he points out that terms like metaphysical concepts are central to our understanding of God, principally the idea of God as being, which in biblical revelation comes to us in the name of God given to Moses, I am. It's a metaphysical claim. It's a very unusual answer to that question. What is your name? And then, of course, the logos, that Greek word that we translate into English as word but can mean reason and order. He says this is the world of reason, the world of faith needs the world of reason so we can understand. <clears throat> and he goes on from that to say that God himself is reasonable. And so to act contrary to reason is act contrary to God. And specifically he says that Violence in the name of religion, that is to coerce belief through violence, is unreasonable because by its very nature, faith has to be free, and therefore, because to coerce violence in the name, coerce faith by violence, or to try to advance faith by violence is contrary to reason, therefore contrary to God's will. He raised that question, this is on the fifth anniversary he spoke, plus one day of 9-11, and he addressed the question of Islamist violence, and it created a huge uproar around the world. And in fact, in that uproar, there's a, a sister, religious Italian missionary sister, uh, who was murdered in Somalia, and she was just beatified in May. I've just forgotten her name, it'll come to me. Uh, Leonella, I think, uh, just beatified a few months ago. But the point of Regensburg was not really about Islam, although it did provoke actually a very fruitful dialogue after the initial violence uh, had calmed down, about what is the role of reason in faith? Can God command something contrary to reason? In general, Benedict was saying, the Islamic view seems to be that it's possible. He didn't actually say that, he suggested maybe it's possible. He said, but the Christian view is that it can't be because God himself is reason, so he can't command something contrary to reason because he'd be contradicting himself. And then after that, <coughs> he moved on to the role of reason in faith, and he said that we have to preserve the role of reason 
in our Christian understanding, we cannot become people who only rely on faith. The most devastating attacks in the Regensburger Address are not on Muslims, they're on Protestants. But that didn't seem to get much of a reaction. So. And then finally, he says, in our world of scholarship, he says, if only those things that can be measured are real, then we lose out on an enormous amount of human wisdom, literature, philosophy, theology, becomes the realm of opinion instead of the realm of truth. And we restrict the radius of human knowledge. Beautiful image because it means the circle becomes ever, the circle of what we know becomes ever smaller if that radius goes from the full breadth of human inquiry just to what can be measured. He calls that materialism or even positivism. So the argument at Regensburg is that religion needs the purifying role of reason. It's actually a, the kind of address <coughs> that, although Benedict is thought to be very traditional, is really quite remarkable for a Pope of Rome to give an address where he basically says that the world of faith, in order to be purified of its excesses, needs reason. That's Regensburg. Well, despite the uh, general uproar that greeted that particular talk, and the view, superficial but widespread, that it was a big gaffe for him to go into that forum, he decided two years ago to do the exact same thing. This time he was in Paris. And he went to speak at the, the historic Cistercian Abbey there, the Collège de Bernardin. Again, which is not a monastery anymore, but again, addressing the world of culture. So the most learned people in France came to listen to him. And one of the things that distinguishes, say, the European uh, reaction or reception of Ratzinger Benedict to the American one is that in Europe, because he was a scholar of the highest rank, he was widely acknowledged, even by people who were atheists or quite distant from the church, to be one of them. He was belonged to that circle of the learned, and so they, in a certain sense, gave him more deference than in the United States, where I think that he was received in, a, I want to say, a more factional way. People liked his conclusions or didn't like his conclusions, and then they reacted to him that way, which is quite interesting because if you look at our dates here, the, um, not dates, our sequence there, one of the places where Benedict visited when he came to the United States in 2008, April, I believe it was, he had an address at the Catholic University of America, but for whatever reason, he did not decide to give one of these magisterial addresses. It was, a, it was a kind of exhortation to, I think, Catholic school teachers, if I remember correctly. So interesting that uh, he didn't make that choice when he came to the United States. But at that speech in France, which was two years to the day exactly after Regensburg, so in a certain sense, you know, Bendik has, is a very, in one way, his personality is a bit meek, quiet, but at the same time, he's actually quite provocative. And when he chose to do another lecture in the same manner, on the same date, two years later, it wasn't by accident. 
But here, he took a different tack. If at Regensburg he said that the world of faith, in order to not become superstitious, to not become arbitrary, needs the world of reason, it's fair to say that in Paris he went the opposite direction. And he said, what does the world of faith have to contribute to the world of reason? Regensburg, you might say, was what does the world of reason have to contribute to the world of faith? And he said, we're here at this Cistercian, historic Cistercian place. What were the monks doing here? And he said, well, the monks were here for one purpose, to seek God. That's what they came to do, to seek God, Quereri Deum. And he said, but this work of the monks in seeking God had massive implications for the whole of society. Why? Well, first of all, in order to seek God, in order for that not to be an absurd quest, God has to be knowable. We have to be able to find out what he said and to think about it. It means that he has revealed himself in a way that we can study. This is not the God of the Aztecs or the God of the Roman pantheon, God's plural, or the Pharaoh. This is a different reality, that this God can be known. And, instead, and he said, Benedict, that in, getting to, in searching for him becomes an entire culture of knowledge. He said, first of all, the monks would study the word of God, the sacred page, the scriptures. And he said, so this gives rise to, rise, pardon me, to a culture of the word. Intelligibility, conversation, education. An old monk can teach a new monk. Translation across cultures. You get a whole culture of the word, a culture of literature, a culture of communication. So now, it arises because of a desire to know better the sacred page, but it creates a culture. He said, this goes into worship. And so the monks would worship. They would study the word. They would study the language, how to use the word, how to proclaim the word, how to translate the word, how to comment on the word, how to preach the word. This is a work of scholarship that's applicable beyond just the sacred word. And then music which is a combination of arts and mathematics. And then if you extend it out into what? Acoustics and architecture. All of these contributions to the world at large are driven by monks who were seeking God. So the broader society benefits from a culture of art, of science, and the world of biblical study and worship of the God of the Bible produces a culture of learning that's very, very advantageous to all those around, which is where we get that phrase, the monks saving civilization. So in Paris, at the Collège de Bernardin, 
Bendix says that not only does faith need reason, as I argued two years ago, but the world of reason, the world of scholarship, the world of science, the world of knowledge, the world of culture, needs the horizons provided by faith. And if you take those, if you take faith away, the horizons of everything else, although technically, techni technically advanced, shrink. And that phrase that he uses, the word he uses, positivism, by, what, by that he simply means positivism means that only those things that can be positively measured are true. So it's a kind of scientific materialism, probably a term we would use more. He said, positivism that says the only thing that I can know is that which I can measure and observe, he says that's not reason exalted, that's the capitulation of reason. That's reason saying that beyond just what's in front of me, I can't reach out to any kind of deeper reality. So a very powerful argument there in Paris. And the two of them together provide a very powerful argument about the compatibility of faith and reason. Just an interesting little aside about the life of Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, the question of faith and reason and, its, and the credibility of the faith in a secular age, in the world of reason, has been, since he was a young theologian, a, pre a preeminent question for him, faith and reason. And in his lifetime, the church has given us two magisterial documents, two encyclicals on basically the relationship of faith and reason. The first one, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of it this month, called Fides et Ratio, published by John Paul II. And Joseph Ratzinger was the principal author, not, I mean, not authoritative author, but drafter, pardon me, better to say, of Fides et Ratio, is published by John Paul II. The second great text on this question is the first encyclical of Francis, uh, five years ago, called Lumen Fidei, the light of faith. Also, the principal draft of which was Joseph Ratzinger Benedict. <clears throat> so, the two great texts on the great question at the center of his intellectual project, he was the principal architect of both of them, but the author of neither, which is just, uh, I think, kind of fascinating. If you, if you like uh, magisterial trivia, that will get you a long way in any game that you're going to play. <laughs> Two years after the address in Paris on his visit to France, uh, Benedict traveled to the United Kingdom, actually to Great Britain, he went to uh, Scotland and England, uh, to beatify John Henry Newman, who was mentioned, and I work at a Newman chaplaincy, so actually went for that visit. Um, it was quite remarkable because Benedict uh, set aside the custom that John Paul had. John Paul had the custom of beatifying, making blesseds, doing beatifications himself, either in Rome or when he traveled, and, and canonizations. And Benedict, when he came in, put an end to that, and he said, uh, beatifications will be done in the local place by a papal 
delegate, and canonizations will be done largely in Rome by the Pope himself. Uh, so he didn't do any beatifications as Pope, with the two exceptions. He beatified John Paul uh, in Rome in 2011, and he beatified John Henry Newman. He went to England to beatify him at Birmingham. And in the context of that visit, which was the great honor he paid to John Henry Newman, uh, he gave a speech at Westminster Hall. Uh, now, Westminster Hall is not the House of Commons, but it's part of the Palace of Westminster where the House of Commons is. It's a very historic building. It's been there for some 800 years, I think. And it's a very rare honor to be able to speak there. Um, I think when Benedict went, uh, he was the fourth one in the 20th century, or since the 20th century. It's, it only happens once a generation. I think Charles de Gaulle was asked to speak there, and Nelson Mandela. Afterwards, now it seems to be a bit more common. There have been a few, but it was a pretty unusual honor. And because that's the place where Thomas More was condemned, his trial took place, uh, there was this idea, uh, or rather awareness, that this was an extraordinary moment that in the place where Thomas More was condemned to die for his defense of the Roman pontiff and his prerogatives, uh, a Roman pontiff was going to visit. I was blessed to be there on that occasion. In my entire life, I've only heard two, I've only been, had two occasions where a very large crowd of you know, thousands of people has been completely silent completely silent, which is actually a very unusual moment. And the silence actually becomes a sort of, uh, not an absence, but a living thing. Uh, one time was at the Great Jubilee when, before John Paul came to open the Holy Door for the Great Jubilee of 2000, and inside St. Peter's, uh, everybody knew that this was a moment, an extraordinary moment of history. Not just the third millennium, but this old man with this astonishing life was meeting this providential moment. And that basilica, which is enormous and filled with people, is always a soft murmur, totally silent. The other time was at Westminster Hall because everybody was there. All the diplomatic corps, all the former prime ministers of Great Britain came. The Archbishop of Canterbury came with Benedict. And there was this awareness that this was something that would not have been imaginable. The Pope would arrive at Westminster Hall. And Benedict gave an address there on basically the relationship of truth <coughs> to politics. Politics and law, you might say. And he said, what are the limits of what a government can do? He said, is it just what the majority says? And he said, no. He said, that politics must follow the moral logic of the common good and human rights. And he spoke there about the slave trade, which you know was one of the proudest moments of British democracies. They abolished the slave trade both overseas and then in Britain without violence. In the appeal to a moral order, he spoke about Thomas More, and he said there, he used an example. This was, you know, London, uh, along with New York, are the great financial capitals of the world, and the economic crisis had devastated that sector. And Benedict said there, is it not widely held now 
that what took place in the financial crisis was that a lot of people were behaving contrary to the nature, the reality of the logic of the order of the economy and of finance. And when that got to be too widespread, reality reasserted itself and there was a crisis that we have to respect. He was appealing to an argument that was very widely shared in Britain. That the giants, the masters of the universe of high finance had violated the fundamental rules about risk, the fundamental rules about what's a responsible use of finance, and it all came to grief. And he said, well, if that's true for the economy, that there are laws that we have to respect, is that also not true for politics? Is there not a human nature that we have to respect? Is there not a truth about the human person and about human society that must be respected? what we call the natural law. And so there he made an argument saying that the politics has to respect the truth of nature, the nature of the human person. That there's limits to politics, that politics can't declare, no matter how procedurally correct the vote is in parliament, they can't make the king the head of the church. That there has to be a limit And that religion provides a correction to politics. So at Regensburg, he said, reason can provide that purification of religion. He repeated that point at Westminster. But he said that the knowledge of moral principles, whether in slavery or in religious liberty, can be a corrective because the political order, whether a democracy with majority rule or a tyrant, always wants to expand its power, and religion, with its moral logic, can provide a correction to that. So he made an argument that actually it's to the advantage of the political order to pay heed to a moral wisdom based on the nature of the human person. He said famously there, religion is not a problem for legislators to solve but a resource for them. <coughs> Very historic moment. The following year, 2011, he returned for his third and final trip to Germany. And this time, he went to speak at the federal parliament. The federal parliament in Berlin is called the Reichstag, but because of its uh, the trauma of the 1930s, it's more commonly referred to as the Bundestag, the but it's the federal parliament of Germany. And it was astonishing. There was a controversy about whether Bendik should be invited to speak there. He's a son of Germany, one of the world's leading intellects, not to mention universal pastor of the church. And about one-sixth of the Bundestag members boycotted his talk. They said, it's, it's not, it's offensive that he should speak here. At the time, I joke, they must have astonishingly high standards for who speaks. They must have a very high level, quite unlike our Canadian House of Commons or perhaps your Congress. 
When Pope Francis spoke to the American Congress, it was considered an honor. It wasn't, there wasn't a, a debate about that. But there was actually in Germany, the Pope's homeland. But well, one third of the members didn't go. Now it's true, the president and the chancellor gave him a very warm welcome. They were suitable, but it gave you some sense of that. <coughs> and Benedict said, I want to speak here today about the attitude of a legislator. And he took the example of King Solomon. He said, Solomon was to govern the people of Israel, and he asked God for a listening heart that he might know wisdom. And he said, we need wisdom because wisdom is what allows us to understand what's justice. And he made a very important point. He said, there, Christianity is not a system of government, much less so the Gospels even compared to the Pentateuch. It doesn't provide a way of ordering society. So, so Christianity, unlike the other world religions, said politics belongs to the order of reason and philosophy, not to the order of revelation and theology. But, he said, the desire to know what wisdom is and to understand through both philosophy and even revelation gives the necessary wisdom to know what the limits of power are. Again, it's an argument that he made in Westminster about truth, and that revelation and theology and philosophy and science are all ways to know the truth. And he said right there amongst his own fellow citizens, he said, St. Augustine said, that without justice, the state is just a great band of robbers. And he said, don't we Germans know better than anybody else in this very place that if there's no justice, what can happen to the state? It's an astonishing moment. You know, you think Westminster was an astonishing moment. To think in the same hundred years as everything that took place in the Reichstag, think of all just the Catholic priests who were martyrs of the Nazi regime. That in the lifetime of someone who lived through that, namely Benedict himself, he would return as Pope to speak about things. It's a, it's, if you don't see the hand of providence in history there, that's too bad. <laughs> You're not capable of seeing it. <coughs> and in the Bundestag, he made an argument similar in its point, but different in, in its example than he made at Westminster. In Westminster, he said, isn't there an order in the financial economic world we have to respect? And if we don't respect it, we pay the consequence. He said, well, in Germany, he said, look, we're very proud in Germany of our ecological consciousness. He was actually uh, doing what you might call, in a polite way, papal trash talking. Because the people who boycotted his talk were the Green Party. So he said, oh, let me discuss ecology while I'm here. And he said, if it's the case that we have to respect the order in the natural world, that is to say, if we degrade or despoil the natural order, we have to face reality. It comes back to us. 
we can't just determine that we're going to dump something there and not face the consequence. You dump something there, you're going to face the consequence. You cut down everything, you're going to face the consequence. And he said, if that's true about the natural world, surely it must be true about the human person who also has a nature. And here he picked up the term human ecology, which John Paul used in Gentesimus Annus, but more in passing, he developed it, and, and Pope Francis now, our Holy Father, uses it quite often. And then he went back to this question about positivism, and he says that if we limit ourselves only to that which we can measure, he says it's like being kept in a bunker with artificial light and what we need for living, but we're not living in touch with reality. So he does something in the Bundestag, he says, look, historically, political systems and systems of laws were based on a religious principle. He said, that's not how Christianity works. That's the world of reason and philosophy and politics. But if we set aside the wisdom that we have through our faith about the order and purpose and mission and vocation of the human person, we will reap the consequences. So again, a defense of reason, a defense of politics, a defense of law, but an insistence that those worlds all benefit from the Christian tradition. Then the final September speech, this was his final trip as Pope in September of 2012. He abdicated in February of 2013. Was to Lebanon, he went there to uh, publish his encyclical on the Middle East after the sin of the Middle East. And there in Lebanon, <coughs> he addressed the question of peace. This is a conflicted land. He said, how can we have peace, especially peace between people who are of different races, different cultures, different religions? He said, there's been periods of peace and periods of war. And he comes there with a message, he says, of that we have to, with those who are of a different view to us, we have to insist on a dialogue that's tireless, but that respects that there are values that we share in common because of the nature we share in common. Again, appealing to the truth of human nature and human society is the basis for agreement when there's theological differences. He talks about respecting the grammar of natural law embedded in the human person so that people who are of different religious traditions can find common ground. He talks about effective solidarity, that key principle of Catholic social teaching is the only remedy to ideologies. An ideology takes something that's true and says, this is absolute and therefore excludes those who are not included. When he says that in Lebanon, people know what he's talking about. Right? He didn't get into the question of specifically Islamic violence in Lebanon, but it was there implied. And he returns in Lebanon to the question of freedom. He says, their evil is not some nameless, impersonal, and deterministic force at work in the world. Evil, the devil, works in and through human freedom. 
That's what we're witnessing, he says, in the violence around us. And that freedom can only be purified in accord with the truth which you can know through reason, but also through faith. And reiterated there in Lebanon, in the heart of the Middle East, a call for religious freedom is that fundamental freedom, which especially in parts of the Islamic world is not honored or respected. And so truth, its relationship, or truth is the, the great question of truth is the, is the question of the September speeches. How do we know truth? We know it by faith. We know it by reason. In order to know it properly, faith needs purifying reason. In order for reason to get to the deepest or broadest or greatest truths, it needs the vision, the horizon of faith. If there's going to be a politics and a law that respects the human person, leads to human flourishing, it has to respect the truth about the human person, which can benefit from the tradition of religion and faith. And if we're going to have peace, if different people are going to live together in peace, they have to have something in common, and what they have in common is their human nature, which itself is illuminated by faith and reason. So I do recommend Fides et Ratio, I do recommend his interview books, I do recommend the parts of Jesus of Nazareth that deal with this question, I do recommend Lumen Fidei, uh, but that's a lot. And the five September speeches actually are an easier way uh, to get into this material. All right, God bless you, thanks. points on that. At the, at the beginning of that talk, when he, speak, when he spoke about uh, the British parliamentary tradition, he spoke about moderation. And he said it was one of the hallmarks of Westminster democracy to be the spirit of moderation, which avoids extremes. Uh, so he praised that part of the British tradition, which is not relevant to your question, but that was the first part. I think he left it implied again. This, is, this would be a difference between um, American culture, political culture, and European political culture. Uh, British, the law in Britain at the time was abortion more or less on demand till 12 weeks, and then restrictions after that. It's been liberalized in recent years. Uh, so the status of the law in Britain, as in many European countries, would be considered a revolution in the United States. I mean, if you were to propose a law in the United States that would have restrictions as early as 12 weeks, it's unheard of. So I think that it's, there's a different political culture there. Uh, he certainly spoke about the right to life as a foundational principle, but in that moment, 
I don't know why he didn't address it. My sense is, is that he wanted or he understood that this moment was a moment of, in a certain sense, enormous historical import for the British people. Uh, there is no one in Britain today, including the Anglican Church, who defends the execution of Thomas More. It's a black mark on their history. The Anglican Church honors Thomas More as a martyr. So that they invited him here, I think his general disposition was to find and to restrict himself to what was praiseworthy on an occasion which was a moment of enormous national uh, importance. Uh, it's hard to imagine that what we saw that day was actually uh, taking place. And as he left in this big hall, they actually took him to the spot. There's a little plaque on the ground that says, here was the trial, and they showed him the spot. So I think that's probably why he, he did it. But there was certainly no trimming of the claims on that point, but he, he didn't say it there. You're right. In the Reagan's first lecture, he invited scholars in the Muslim world to join conversation about the role of right reason in all religious faith. To the best of your knowledge, have any Muslim scholars anywhere accepted that invitation? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because that's actually the untold part of Regensburg. Regensburg was the most successful venture in Catholic-Muslim dialogue of importance in our time. There was the initial street riots and so forth. Within a year, uh, there was a letter of about 170 leading Muslim scholars from around the world, an open letter to Benedict, taking up the points, thanking him for the Regensburg lecture, engaging some of the points that were there. Um, most astonishingly, the king of Saudi Arabia, who is a, a political ruler, has a specific role in Islam as the custodian of the, custodian of the two holy mosques, visited Benedict in the Vatican, which is not a small thing for the king of Saudi Arabia to do. And even more, he convened a conference to discuss these principles with, with Christians, mostly Catholics, Jews, and Muslims. Now, to give you an idea of how astonishing that is, is the king of Saudi Arabia, despite being the king, cannot do that in Saudi Arabia because you don't have Jewish and Christian clerics speaking openly. So the conference was held at the uh, Royal Palace of Madrid. The King of Spain hosted it for him. The King of Saudi Arabia went there. So actually, the Regensburg Address, in terms of a high-level exchange, um, is, was a big breakthrough. When Pope Francis went to Egypt, either last year or the year before, and spoke at the Al-Azhar Mosque and University, and gave a kind of a version of Regensburg and was very well received, that was building on the foundation of uh, Regensburg. And that part of the story has largely been left out. Regensburg, if you, if you insist on cutting the historical timeline off on September the 14th, 2006, seemed not to advance the cause, but it certainly did afterwards. Thanks for asking. There's actually an alternate possible explanation he may have outsmarted King Juan Carlos, is that it? And he come in there to see the uh could last be. question before we break to be organized for the for the uh, panel discussion. Uh, and that is this does not go to, to 
December 12th directly. In the years since the wars of the PCA, right, okay. it seems that Pope Francis is allowing mutually exclusive and possibly even contradictory disciplines to emerge in local churches concerning who may lawfully be admitted to the Holy Eucharist. Is this an expression of subsidiarity in the discipline of the sacraments or the introduction of incoherence into Catholic faith and life? Well, first of all, subsidiarity is a social doctrine principle. It's not a principle for the life of the church. Um, you know, any curate who asks his pastor or any pastor who asks his bishop finds that subsidiarity doesn't have a big remit uh, in the internal governance of the church. Right. So, um, correct. So, on the Morosotitia, there is a problem there that it is not authentic subsidiarity to say that what is permitted uh, in one place as holy is outlawed or prohibited as sinful in another place. That can't be. It's possible that you could have different customs, so, I mean, it doesn't actually exist, but it's possible to think that the Eucharistic fast in one country is different than another. I mean, you you could foresee that. Certainly feast days are different with their attendant disciplinary uh, regulations. So that we already have. Um, but there is, there are apparent contradictions. Now I say apparent because in the history of doctrine in the church, you have to look at what is taught and not what you think the person who's teaching believes. You may actually know what the person teaching believes, but you have to look at what specifically is taught. And that there are contradictory interpretations of Amoris Laetitia in different parts of the world is a reality and a lamentable one. It's a, it's a, it's a problem, it's a serious problem. But the text is actually Amoris Laetitia. You have to read that text, and what does that text mean? And it is possible to read that text in harmony with the previous magisterial teaching. In particular, it's possible to read it in continuity with familiaris consortio, as for example, the bishops of Alberta and the Northwest Territories have amply demonstrated in their guidelines. Um, I think it's more difficult, actually, to demonstrate the total coherence of Amoris Laetitiae chapter eight with Veritatis Splendor. I think that's actually a much more difficult proposition which I think is why it has not been attempted by anybody. But you have to look at what's being taught there. So we are in a moment of confusion, uh, which is not good, but I would liken it on a larger scale to what could happen. You know, most of us have experience in our own diocese is that there might be a parish that's doing something that, in one, that is allowed in one place, or the pastor allows it, in another place it's forbidden. And one of those two people has to be wrong about it. And, but we can live with it, or whether we, can, whether we should, we just do live with it. But it's a, it's, um, it's a problem. It's not authentic subsidiarity. It is a challenge to the unity of the faith. 
But specifically on that text, the, the key thing is what the text is. And just to be very specific, when the Holy Father says that those bishops have the correct interpretation of what I've written, that's not actually what is written. And the Pope cannot say that the authentic interpretation of Amoris Laetitiae is a document issued by other bishops that I think is particularly well done. That's, that's just not how the magisterium works. He can write his own document that clarifies what he said. Now, there's all these confusions around, and it, and it can lead people to think that there's something that's taught now that wasn't taught before. I think you can say it's apparent, which is a serious enough problem, but that's not actually the, if you want to say what is actually being taught, which is not ideal, but that's where we are. All right, God bless you. Thank you.